Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This is the first of two extra episodes this week, pre-election episodes. Today, Helen Thompson and I are talking to the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dan Yergin about his new book on the rise of China, the shale revolution, climate change, the big themes of contemporary politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Talking Politics, in partnership with the London Review of Books. We recorded this episode on Friday. I'm in Cambridge, Helen's in London, Dan's in the United States. We obviously don't know what's going to happen in the US presidential election, but as you'll hear, we do speculate a bit. So Dan, one part of the new map that you lay out so elegantly in the book is the energy map that both confronted China and that in some sense now China has made for itself. And one way of thinking about that would be to say, well, that map that China confronted began in 1993 when China started to import oil from abroad. And as we know, what happened some point over the last decade was that China replaced the United States as the world's largest oil importer. And during, say, that two-decade period, the basic assumption in a lot of Western policy seemed to be that China's economic rise, its spectacular economic return, perhaps would be a better way of describing, it could be in some sense, geopolitically non-disruptive. Yet anybody reading your book, The Prize, about the history of the oil industry and the geopolitical conflicts of the 20th century would have, I would say, thought it absurd that a country like China, the size of China, could become a major oil importer without it having geopolitical consequences. That seems like a very strange illusion that took hold. And I just wonder what you make of that, looking back on this idea that people in Washington really took seriously the idea that China's spectacular economic growth and all that meant for its energy consumption could be accommodated relatively straightforwardly into an American-led international order. Helen, there are two strands in your question. One is the turnaround in the Chinese position, because China was self-sufficient in petroleum until 1993, as you point out. And now it's kind of swapped positions with the United States, which seems to be the largest importer of oil and isn't anymore. And China now imports 75% of its oil, even though it has the fifth largest oil industry. And for China, that's a big strategic issue, really going back actually even as far as the Korean War. The other side of it, and I think you've really gone to the, to me, what's almost the heart of the question is an extraordinary change in the view of China in the West, and in particular in Washington, and by the way, a change in China's view as well. In the new map, I went back and just charted what previous presidents said about the relationship with China. Clinton said that getting China to the WTO was one of the most important things he'd done as president. Presidents talked about collaboration with a changing China constructive relationship. 
about five years ago, that began to change even before the Trump administration. And now the language is very much about China is a strategic rival, great power competition. That's mirrored, by the way, in Chinese language. And it's not the, the world of, as I say, the WTO consensus of a cooperative global world order, but rather it actually has some echoes of pre-World War I. And Dan, where do you think when seen either from Washington or Beijing, as China strives to secure its map, its energy map, where are the most dangerous points? Where do you think the biggest risks are for serious conflict? I think the number one risk is the South China Sea, which to many people will sound remote, but it's the most important commercial waterway in the world. One third of world trade passes through it. And there is a fundamental dichotomy. China claims that the South China Sea essentially is it and that its territory extends down to Indonesian Malaysia, if people can imagine the map. The rest of the world, including the countries that border the South China Sea, including Japan, including the United States, including Britain, including Australia, reject that view and say that those are open waters and anybody can pass through them. And it has become militarized. China has reclaimed 3,200 acres of land and has turned it into military bases. And there have been several near collisions of U.S. and Chinese naval ships. And so literally that's where the risk of collision is. You know, it's interesting how history works because the South China Sea, it was actually the French when they had a colonial empire who were trying to claim it as part of Indochina. There's a geographer in China in 1936 who drew a map that said that this is Chinese territory, that it was fighting the century of humiliation, which is a big theme of Xi Jinping today. And that map was adopted by the nationalists and then by the communists when they took over. And that nine-dash line map is really at the center of, uh, I would say, world contention and is maybe the riskiest map in the world. And this is putting it too crudely, these aren't two exclusive options, but you know, there's a sense, as you say, the century of humiliation, that the way to think about this is about a national identity, possibly even national pride. Of course, the other way to think about it is in much more material terms, that is, this is fundamentally about energy and energy supply. If you view it on the energy, energy supply perspective, do you think that it starts to look more dangerous? I think it has a triggering quality. You know, a lot of people say, oh, there's vast amounts of oil and gas underneath the waters of the South China Sea. The geologists that I work with and know and talking in the international industry really don't think so. The real significance of the South China Sea is that as much oil passes through it every day as passes through the Strait of Hormuz out of the Persian Gulf. And the scenario for China is pretty clear cut. Confrontation over Taiwan, U.S. Navy there, and in what they call the Malacca Dilemma, it cuts interdicts supplies of oil going to China. But China, that's a huge strategic risk. And so I think from an energy point of view, that's why the South China Sea looms particularly large for China. Can I just follow up on that? Because it seems to me an interesting paradox in a way about the way that the South China Sea has become more important over the, the last five years as a source of four or five years anyway, as a source of geopolitical tension. Yet you could argue that the whole point of One Belt, One Road is to get away from the Strait of Malacca dilemma, to try to not obviously reduce China's dependency on that to nothing. That wouldn't be possible in present circumstances, but significantly to reduce the amount of oil that China ends up having to take through the Strait of Malacca. So how have we got into a situation where China simultaneously seems to be have responded 
to its strategic dilemma in that strait by an alternative strategy, and yet at the same time that the South China Sea has become a source of even greater conflict than it was five years ago. I think that you point to the Belt and Road. I mean, in a way, when I talk about the new map, it's a metaphor, but it's also concrete. And there are two sets of maps. One is that map that I mentioned, the nine-dash line map for uh, the South China Sea. The other is the map of the Belt and Road, which is really, there are like six different routes in that. And that's that $1.4 trillion project by China for connectivity for Central Asia, South Asia, Middle East, Africa, Europe, in a way to make China much more central to the whole world economy. And there are multiple reasons for it. There's strategic, there's markets for Chinese goods, that China has excess money to invest. But it's also energy, Helen, as you say, is a very big dimension of it to assure energy supplies. And so I think you can see this, the Belt and Road in part, one element of it as an offset, as a very big hedge against the dependence on the South China Sea. You can also see it in terms of the relationship with Russia and China, which has really blossoms, particularly since uh, 2013. So then if we then frame this against, you know, there are many overlapping themes in your book, but you begin with perhaps the most dramatic change, which is the shale revolution. And, and you tell that story as a real drama, you know, the, the moments when individuals take a bet and the bet comes off. And it has been transformative in ways that people are only, I think, just beginning to appreciate. Just give us a sense of how much has changed in the global map that you describe because of what has happened to shale energy in the United States. Yeah, it's not just a case of, quote, energy independence, which nine presidents since 1973 have been arguing for, but it's the economic impact of it, which is very significant in terms of jobs, in terms of manufacturing. But it also, as you're alluding to, David, is about a change in international politics because the U.S. is virtually energy independent today. And so that raises questions about what is the future role and interest in the Middle East. It also gives U.S. a, call it a flexibility in foreign policy. I tell the anecdote in the book about when I had the unfortunate experience of uh, well, it didn't start off to be unfortunate, but to ask a question of uh, Vladimir Putin when he was on the stage with Chancellor Merkel, and I mentioned the word shale, and he got, you know, basically started shouting at me, which is uncomfortable in front of 3,000 people. But the reason is for the Russians, they look at shale and they say, this means that Russian gas now has a major new competitor in Europe, which is US LNG, as well as LNG from Qatar and Australia and other countries. And it changes the position of the United States in terms of foreign policy. We just did an India Energy Forum, and Prime Minister Modi participated. And one of the themes is how shale has become, and the exports of U.S. oil and gas from the United States to India have become one of the foundations of a more stable relationship between the U.S. and India that wasn't there before. There are other factors as well, strategic, going back to our China question, but you see it there. And whether one supports Barack Obama's approach to Iran or Donald Trump's approach, either one of them depended upon the U.S. oil position because it basically means that Iranian oil, which is now shut out of the market, sort of becomes irrelevant, which was unthinkable 10 years ago. I was just going to follow up on the Europe question, Dan. I wonder how much of the difficulties in Atlantic relations in relation to NATO over the last, let's say, seven or eight years, you would actually put down to the ability for the first time, really, 
since the European countries, particularly obviously Germany, made themselves dependent on Russian gas. So going back to the 1970s, the first time that the United States has been able to challenge that, because obviously during the Cold War, even though US-Soviet relations were supposed to be even more confrontational than US-Russian relations have become, although the Reagan administration had something of a go at trying to lessen European dependency on Soviet gas exports via the Trans-Siberian pipeline conflict in the early 80s, it backed away from that conflict. And now what we've seen, obviously, is not just a American president, but the American Congress getting very tough about Nord Stream 2. Do you see this as being central to the way in which the European members of NATO and the United States have come apart? I think it's one of the major factors. All of us as historians have to be fascinated to see this current drama of the US seeking to push back on Russian gas in Europe that basically on and off, this has been going on for 70 years. But the difference, Helen, as you point out, is the US now is in a position to say, hey, we have an alternative to offer you to Russian gas, which is US LNG. Again, I emphasize there's gas coming from other people too. And Donald Trump turned into this super LNG salesman almost in his confrontations. I mean, there've been other parts of the issues about financial support for NATO and so forth, but it's interesting to see that one of the major conflicts right now is focused on natural gas and on what's called this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that runs from Russia under the Baltic Sea to Germany, except it doesn't quite get there because US sanctions stopped this $11 billion project three weeks from being completed. So energy is one of the major issues that weighs on the relationship between the United States and its traditional allies in Western Europe. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So we're recording this the weekend before the US presidential election. And as you said, since the 1970s, American presidents have been talking about the benefits of energy independence and now more by accident than by design, the United States has it. And yet we have one candidate who may be going to win, whose party is wanting to push back hard against the basis of that energy independence. So we don't know if we'll get a Biden administration, but say we did. How much scope do you think politically and economically there is to turn it around the shale revolution how much of it is just baked in over the medium term and beyond the power of a president to undo that's a very good point because a lot of the authority that the president can't just stop it it actually shale production is regulated by the states you can have a heavy hand of regulation or an even heavier hand of regulation if you want 
this ban fracking, it's a very emotive issue. I mean, it's interesting, the fracking revolutions, you say, almost happened by accident. One obsessed, stubborn individual for 18 years, they told him it wasn't possible. It turned out it was possible, a man named George Mitchell. But now it's made the U.S. the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. And there are a couple of things that just jump out that, one, if you actually were to ban fracking and part of the Democratic Party supports that and introduces legislation to do that, it would really be an import more policy. If you have 280 million cars in the United States, almost all of them run on what we could either call gasoline or petrol, and they're not going to run on something else. You know, the people who would also like to see a ban on fracking in the U.S. would be major oil exporting countries because they would be big beneficiaries of it. I think the other thing that just strikes me is that people don't see how pervasive, let's say, oil products are in our society. I mean, the bodies of electric vehicles are made out of plastic. So many of the tools that have been used to fight COVID are basically derived oil products, plastics of one kind, the masks that you're wearing and so forth. And so I think it's a big emotional term. I think a Biden administration would have to navigate because you said he's not going to ban fracking, but he is going to put more regulations. And I think what he would really do is step on the gas, so to speak, on a climate policy that looks more like Europe's climate policy and is aimed at net zero carbon by 2050. So it's kind of more, well, we'll let the oil industry go on and what he's saying until it doesn't go on rather than take the action that people like Bernie Sanders would like to ban fracking. But, you know, you think of Bernie Sanders getting operated on his heart during the primaries. That hospital room is filled with plastics. That's what hospital rooms need to operate. I just wonder what you think about the way in which energy has played out in this US election, the way in which it's got tangled up with the China strategic rivalry, because it seems to me that the argument that Trump has been pressing is essentially that the Democrats want to sell the United States out to China, that that's what giving up on fracking, that's what turning towards renewable energy on on a completely different scale would entail. It kind of then starts to look like a replay of some of the discussions about China's initial integration into the international economy in the 1990s, as if to say, well, actually, this time when it comes to renewable energy, there can be cooperative economic development for the US and for China. And at the same time, though, it would seem that the very nature of the Chinese government's commitment to high-tech manufacturing power, the Made in China 25 strategy, sort of systematically commits China to competition now in renewable energy itself. Well, if you say who would be the big winners of a rapid move towards renewables, actually the biggest winner would be China. One, for the reasons we talked about before, they would be using less oil. I mean, they sell 50% more cars a year, every year than are sold in the United States. I mean, the scale of what China is using. The other thing is, Helen, what you point to in their target for new industries 2025, renewables are very much there. So you look at solar panels, about 70% are made in China, another 10% by Chinese companies elsewhere. I was talking to an Indian company, which because of now the stress between China and India, wanted to not buy solar panels from China. They found they could buy them from somewhere else, but they found out it's still from a Chinese company. They dominate the lithium ion battery supply chain right now. And of course, rare earths. So I think that Part of globalization has been the development of all these supply chains where things are made and put together and they come all together 
It's based upon cost, efficiency, economics, technology. On the other side was geopolitics, but in the era that you were describing of before about five years ago under globalization, that was fine. Supply chains were there, geopolitics was over there. Now, I think what you're getting at is we're gonna start to see a collision of geopolitics with the supply chains for the low carbon economy too. And uh, we've already seen the Europeans without naming China doing a report saying, well, we do have to look at our dependence. And there's a lot of talk about building up in the United States, domestic technology industries, batteries, and the same thing is going on in Europe. It's the question, are you trading one form of dependence for another? And how different is it and how not different is it? Particularly in this context of right now, it kind of seems to be an increasing polarization and pulling apart. If I can add one other thing to it, you know, before World War I, one of the great issues was the rivalry of the battleship, the naval race. Now it's a technology race. It's quantum computing, it's uh, Huawei and telecommunications. These have all become very fraught areas. And the question is, would it also become a fraught area in terms of the supply chains for a low carbon economy? And presumably the race to win the battery wars is going to be absolutely central in the next couple of decades. Absolutely. Because if you say, I talk in the new map about what are the breakthrough technologies you need to get from here to there, three or four things are at the top of the list. At the very top of the list, David, is exactly what you just said, which is batteries. Because if you could get large scale grid storage batteries, you take wind and solar and you turn them into intermittent resources that need backup from nuclear or natural gas or something else, and you turn them into what's called baseload, that changes the game. So that's one of the really three or four focuses of uh, research. And it is a race. It is a race. A lot of people are trying to win that game. So if we can finish by talking head on about climate change and the politics of climate change. So as you say, the Democratic Party is in some bits of it being pulled in a more radical direction in relation to energy and climate. But we're also seeing, particularly in Europe, but in other places too, the rise in broader public opinion of a deep anxiety and an activism, particularly youth activism, around climate change. And you suggest in your book, inevitably, this is going to grow. And yet, a big theme of your book is that the energy transition that's needed is a really slow, long-term business. There is not going to be an energy revolution in that sense that maybe matches some of the increasing political urgency around climate change. So could you just talk us how those two timeframes, I mean, climate change is a long-term problem. The energy transition is a long-term solution. And yet I got a strong feel from your book that these things are out of sync politically. I think it was just looking at the numbers and the scale that the world uses. 84% of its energy comes from fossil fuels. In India, they are actually have a big program to increase their natural gas usage because they want to end what the World Health Organization says is the number one environmental problem in the world, which is indoor pollution from cooking with wood and waste and so forth. So I think there's that element of it. There's the economic growth element. There's population growth. Energy transitions, you know, I kind of wear my hat as an economic historian. I dare to say that the energy, first energy transition began in January 1709 in Shropshire in England, where an English metal worker found that he could use coal to make better iron than with wood. And it took a long time for coal to really become king coal. It took a long time for oil there. So wind and solar, first I want to say, 
they're not new. These are 50-year-old industries, and they have become, in the last 10 years, they've reached maturity, their costs have come down, they're getting scale. So that's a big positive for their advance. But it's the overall scale of the energy system and kind of the missing technologies that are there to get from here to there. So I think directionally, it's very clear where the world is going. Question is, how fast can it go there? Uh, average car in the United States stays on the road for 12 years. So it's kind of being realistic and seeing that I think the real answers are going to be not policy, but technology. But let me do say what makes this energy transition different from all others is you have such a strong weight of government policy, government incentives, regulations, subsidies, and you have what you alluded to, that very strong activism, particularly among millennials about it. So that will accelerate things. But I think there's got to be batteries. There needs to be perhaps hydrogen will play an important role to support what was an $87 trillion economy. Carbon capture is something that's really important when you look at the elements. And then I think we all can reflect because of the COVID experience, digitalization. How will digitalization really change how we live, how we work, how we travel? And will that be a disruptive technology? You know, the reason I call the book The New Map is because the terrain changed so dramatically over 10 years from shale to falling costs of solar to we talk about US-China. And what I say is the energy era before Paris and after Paris, which is a Paris climate conference, all those things happen. A lot of surprises and now COVID. So I think there'll be further surprises and the surprises could be very positive in terms of technology. Just don't see them now. I think the two constants that are there one is that climate will just become a more and more important issue. And two, I think this clash of nations, which uh, seem to have been relegated to the past with the end of the Cold War, is something that will rise in tempo. And we may even be talking about new Cold Wars, which would not have been thought of five or six years ago. So I think the basic thing is understanding the scale and how pervasive energy is. It's not just the motor car in the garage. I was just going to ask you about the map question, actually, in relation to Paris. You described, I mean, I know there are other things going on, but in significant part, a map that's shaped by China's rise. And that changes Russia's map. It changes the Middle East. It has all kinds of consequences. And then into that comes the American shale boom. And that has profound implications for the map, too. Now, one way of thinking about it then will be to say, which kind of I thought you were alluding to, that with the Paris Accord and the fact that there was for the first time, a serious agreement between the United States and China about the climate, that the map fundamentally changed again. And as you suggested earlier, it changed to China's advantage because of the advantage that China already had in certain renewable sectors and was doubling down in committing to the Made in China 2025. And then Trump came along and pulled the United States out of the Paris Accord. So you could say the American side of that fell away. But is it the case that we're now living both with the map that China made and then shale remade again, and then that parallel map, if you like, has emerged around it since the US and China began cooperating over climate and that if Joe Biden is to win, might then be restored by Joe Biden? Or is it that the climate map is going to come in time to replace the map that China and shale made? I mean, I constructed the book around a series of metaphorical maps, America's map, China's map, Russia's map, maps of the Middle East, of course, 
which in the past would have had much more dramatic impact on markets than it does now, partly because of shale, and then roadmap to the future. And then, as you say, climate map. And I think Trump, one of the first things he did was try to begin to get out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is extraordinary to have 195 nations agree to it. And I think since it was signed, what's happened, it's just become more and more embedded in government policies and investor attitudes and company strategies. But Biden would get back in it and would be right back in the center of it. It was interesting at the United Nations where President Xi Jinping of China announced that China set the goal of being net carbon zero by 2060. And I think that was a message in opposition to where the Trump administration is, and also to kind of say, well, we're going to be a global leader. And China does produce now, the chart I have in, in the new map is 29% of CO2 emissions. It's going to be a challenge for China because half the world's solar, half the world's wind is in China, half the world's electric cars are in China. China's also building three new coal-fired plants a month and needs to deliver economic growth. So I think it all comes together that the direction is pretty clear. The pressures are there, but it's more complicated and has more pieces to it when you have a global economy of this scale and you do have nations cooperating, not cooperating. You know, I would say one thing that tells you how the world has changed. We had the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the G20, the nations of the world really cooperated to solve it. Look at what's happened in terms of dealing or not dealing with COVID and the lack of international cooperation. And that it's been bad for dealing with the disease. It's also bad for the international order that it was done on such a nationalistic basis. It's a symptom of a malaise in global politics today. And can I ask one very last question, which is, so you talked about this energy transition. One thing that's different about it is that both the pressure from political activism, particularly the millennial generation, and then also just that panoply of government incentives, regulations, and you know, state intervention. But you also do say that you know, a huge amount depends on consumer behavior. It's not just about production. It is about people changing patterns of consumption. And COVID may accelerate that or it may not. But do you think that's the biggest challenge here? Because that's not so obviously amenable either to activism or to regulation. I think that's right. At the end of the day, automakers can make low carbon or they can make electric cars. The question is, does the public want to buy them? I think that is one example. That's why I say the kind of digitalization, it is striking how I think if last January, January 2020, you'd say that so many people would be at home and people would all be connecting just uh, digitally and newspapers would be put out with almost no one in the newsroom. You'd say that it's just not possible, but we've seen how that can happen. So I think at the end of the day, it does depend upon consumers it depends upon the public because they're the people who use energy and what they do in their daily lives will shape it in the small things and the big things. And so as we come out of COVID and go back, you know, I'd be careful about generalizing about what's going to happen when we come out of COVID. But I think some of the changes are going to be irreversible. But I guess what you're saying at the end of the day, the energy transition will really be determined by the people not who produce energy but by the people who use energy. We will tweet a link and include in our show notes the previous episodes that we've recorded on this theme, including with Helen, about oil. 
We've got one more extra for you before we come back to discuss what we hope, maybe, just maybe, will be the results of the presidential election. That's an episode coming out tomorrow with Roberto Foa talking about his groundbreaking new report into young people's attitudes to democracy and the big question, have young people had enough of it? Do join us for that and for a lot more this week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Politics.